Kids, good morning, kids. Good to see you here. If you're a kid, raise your hand. One of the children here. Raise your hand, children. Children, how many of you wish you were older and more grown up? <laughs> Some of it? All right. The grown-ups here don't think you should wish that. But kids, if you wish you were grown up, well, you get to be here today in our gathering. This is what grown-ups do regularly. We gather together to hear God's word. And so, we're glad you're here with us. We're glad your teachers get a break. And we want to meditate on God's word together. And so, grown-ups and kids, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible, pew Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn to page 873, page 873. Um, the, when I say Matthew 19, 19 is the chapter number, that's a big number. And when I say verses 1 through 12, those are the small numbers. So it's going to go from page 873 to page 874 in the Pew Bible. Members, if you see a guest around you who doesn't have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab a Pew Bible for them and just help them find their way there. That would be helpful for them. All right, let's hear God's word from Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give, a divorce, to give, us, to give divorce papers and to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. He responded, Not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you now for a chance to meditate on your word together that we've just read. We praise you that you speak to us. We pray for our children here specifically that you'd help them to hear your word and be transformed not only by hearing your word, but by being in this gathering in the presence of all of us. Give the parents wisdom and members wisdom to help them along and help us to focus on you, even with the ordained and predestined distractions that are coming our way. Father, we pray that you'd incline our hearts to your testimony and not to material gain. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word and may we feel the wonder and goodness of it. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your covenant love so that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. Help us now, for apart from you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What is marriage? How do you define marriage? This is more confusing in 2023 than it would have been in 1923 in preaching this, or even 2003. Marriage, according to the founders, was a, quote, voluntary association of a man and a woman who contracted in liberty to create the independent legal and civic entity of the family. So it's a contract. According to Thomas Jefferson, if this voluntary association should suffer, quote, a long train of abuses, then it too can be severed. So it's a voluntary association. It's a contract. Um, move from a covenant. It used to be a covenant, a spiritual association, a social estate, and a national institution. But now it moved exclusively to, quote, a vol another person says it's a, quote, voluntary sexual contract between consenting adults. Or, again, a bargain struck by two parties. So marriage is a bargain. It's a voluntary association. It's a sexual contract. It's a social contract. A private temporary, another person put, it's a private temporary secular union about self-fulfillment, a commercial venture, and a temporary association of individuals. Here's a legal definition. In 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Court in Goodrich versus Department of Public Health defined marriage as a private and exclusive union, a sexual and affectionate relationship. That's in 2003. Our, our world is confused about what marriage is. You know that we have a statement in our church, Confession of Faith, of what marriage is. So you have a counter statement there. I'll read that later on in our gathering. But that's marriage. Let's think about divorce. What's a valid reason for divorce? Divorce affects us all in this world, in this country. Even if you don't have parents who are divorced, just around us, friends, family, church family. What is a valid reason for divorce? Early on, the government got involved because since the wives tended to be victims of these self-divorce estates lobbied for a legal divorce where blame could be assessed and the transmission of property could be defined. So, and this is all from different articles, the plaintiff had to show that the defendant had broken the contract. And here's another quote, whereas in the 18th century, adultery and desertion were the only recognized bases for divorce, a divorce, States added grounds such as extreme cruelty, fraudulent marriage contract, gross neglect of duty, and habitual drunkenness. Habitual drunkenness was a grounds for divorce in the 19th century. The history of divorce in the 19th century is bittersweet. 
Another article says, no doubt all parties took divorce more seriously in this era when compared to the present age. Divorce was regulated by the state. Courts assessed blame and penalties, and as a result, divorce rates were low. Less than two divorces for every thousand marriages. Less than two divorces every thousand marriages in 1870. In 1969, California was the first state to pass no-fault divorce, where now you don't even need a grounds for divorce. You don't need it to be justified. You could just cite, quote, irreconcilable differences. And that could be whatever differences you want to define. Ronald Reagan signed that into law as the governor of California in 1969 with the hopes of reducing divorces. It had the exact opposite effect. And now 40 to 50 percent, or is it, yeah, 40 to 50 percent of first marriages and 50 to 60 percent of second marriages end in divorce. So we would need to think about marriage and divorce and God's word this morning. So here's the main goal. In, this, in the midst of this confusion in our culture, here's the main goal. Humbly accept and approve Christ's teaching. Humbly accept and approve Christ's teaching on divorce, marriage, and singleness. Because the book of Matthew is all about getting you to become a discipler of all nations. That's the goal. If you're going to disciple all nations and baptize them and teach them to obey everything Christ commanded, you need to know what Christ commands and teaches about divorce, marriage, and singleness. And he covers all of these here, and obviously each of these can be a single sermon or a single sermon series in and of themselves. And we're going to do it all here in one sermon, so let's jump in. And there are four instructions I have for you this morning, four instructions to help you humbly accept and approve of Christ's teaching on divorce, marriage, and singleness. Point one will be on the nature of marriage. Point two will be on the reality of divorce and point three will be some thoughts on singleness so let's look and then point four we'll, we'll wrap it all together so point one accept and approve the design of marriage accept and approve the design of marriage so look, let's just go straight to verse three some of the pharisees approached jesus to test him and they asked him is it lawful for a man to divorce his, divorce his wife on any grounds there's the question is it okay for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds where is this coming from this is coming from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. So if you want to turn to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, you can and follow along here. I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It says this. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds, now here's the key phrase, because he finds something indecent about her. There it is. Something indecent about her. He may write her a certificate, a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. So there it is. You can keep your finger in Deuteronomy 24. We'll come back to that later. But do you see the grounds here? If a husband looks at his wife and finds something what? Indecent about her. Then he may write her a certificate of divorce. So here's the question. On what grounds can you divorce someone? What makes up something indecent about her? That's the question. And there were two different schools of thought at the time. Um, one rabbi, Shammai, and his school said that what that means is sexual immorality. That's something indecent about her. If, if you find that, then, that, then there's a reason and you may, you may get divorced 
If you find sexual immorality with her, then you may divorce. There's another school of thought, and a more popular school as well, there are two popular schools of thought, is the school of Hillel. And he said, you may, any reason, may refers to any, anything indecent is anything indecent. It can even be her burning your dinner, burning your meal. It's grounds for divorce. I hear some husbands say, hmm, real, real loud, okay? Oh, or something, some look about, about her that you don't like. Rabbi Akiba says, he may divorce her if he found another fairer than she. Wow. That's Rabbi Akiba. Hey, Rabbi, that's crazy. Just <laughs> find someone fairer, that's, that's grounds. That's something indecent about her. It's ridiculous. Anyways, I'm, going, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to this passage here. What's Jesus' answer? What's Christ's answer? Look, look at verse 4. What are the grounds? Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied... That he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What's his answer? On what grounds did Moses say we can divorce, a man can divorce his wife on any grounds? Jesus' answer is what? Yes or no? Or what, what does he say? Does he answer the question? I mean, he sort of does, but kind of indirectly, right? He doesn't directly answer the You're right. He does not directly answer the question. At the end of it, though, in verse 6, he says, What God has joined together, what? What's the command there? Let no one separate. And that's what divorce does. Divorce separates. So, so he, he sort of answers with a command there, but he doesn't really go directly at their answer. And there's wisdom there. There's divine wisdom from Jesus in answering it this way first. So let's think about um, a few thoughts here of what Jesus is doing. He's actually going not to their question, he's backing up to the, the beginning and going to the design of marriage. If God is our creator and God created marriage, what was his design, what was his intention, what was his purpose with marriage? Let's go there before we even talk about grounds for divorce. So, a few things to think about. Look at verse 4. We learn in verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. So, when did God create them? In the what? In the beginning. He takes us back to the beginning, to God's intention and purpose and design for marriage. So, the first thing is to know is God has a design for marriage. There is a divine design for marriage. Secondly, look at verse 4. In the beginning, he made them male and female. In other words, marriage is complementarian. And I'm not talking about the theological stance of complementarian, though I believe that too. What I mean is that a male and female complement one, one another. They're not the same. A male is not a female, and a female is not a male. But God made a male and a female to become one, and they complement each other. Marriage is not a male and a male, or a female and a female, or three people, or two males and two females. It's one male and one female in union together. That is God's design. That's his intention. That's his plan and purpose. Gender, side note here in our culture, gender is God's design. 
Your biological sex is your gender, and your gender is your biological sex. They are one in the same, and that is God's good design for all humanity. Not just for Christians, not just for Bible believers, but for everyone. This is God's good design, and His grace, His common grace, to everyone. And marriage, then, is a union between one male, one man, and one female, one woman. And there are rules for husband and wife to fulfill. You can read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 if you want to fill that out more. It kind of goes along God's creation design, but we're not going to take the time to unpack that here. Next, let's look at verse 5. Let's learn something else about God's design from verse 5. Verse 5 says, And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother. Well, hold on. Before we go to that, let's just even talk about, And he also said. Who said? Who also said? Verse 5 says he. Who's the he there? Look, look in the context in verse 4 and tell me who the he is. Don't, I, I hear some of you saying God, and that's okay to say that, but use the words of verse 4. Who is the he? Who's the, 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 yeah, the referent? He who what? He who created them. Okay, the creator, right? So the creator spoke and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Who did? Moses. Is Moses the creator? No. Moses wrote it. Moses said that, right? But Jesus is saying, the Creator said that. This is just a side note, but we need to notice that Jesus says that the God, the one who created, spoke. In other words, just a side note here, this is important for later on in our passage, in our message. Jesus assumes the inspiration of Scripture. When Moses speaks, God speaks. The Bible you hold in your hand is the word of God. I know that seems very basic, but you need to understand how miraculous and how wonderful this reality is. That you actually have the creator's words in front of you. As God's creatures, God has spoken and he's given us words through Moses, through Matthew, through Jesus. But the point here is that God's words, the words of scripture are the words of God. And we're going to pick up on why that's important later. But as we think about marriage, marriage is spoken of by God is the point here. So God is the one who's revealing to us the design of marriage. Look at verse 5. So God said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. So now the... In, in the husband and wife leaving father and mother, there's a new primary allegiance. Initially, the primary allegiance of children are to their parents, not even to their siblings. You know, siblings like to get together against their parents, maybe sometimes. That's good for, for siblings to look out for each other. But there's a primary allegiance from children to parents. And then when they get married, the primary allegiance switches by God's design. The spouse is primary, not your mom, not your dad. Your spouse is primary. They leave father and mother and cling to their spouse. The spouse becomes a priority above the parent. And their joining may produce children who will be part of the family. You know, they may adopt and find ways to add to the family, but their joining may produce 
children who will be part of the family, but eventually those children will leave the nucleus, the nuclear family, and start their own nucleus, their own nuclear family. Okay, so marriage is the new family nucleus. You know, some people say when they're married, oh, um, we're, we're going to start a family. When they, talk, when they say that, what do they mean? That they're going to what? Have kids. Have kids. That's not quite right. The family begins in marriage. When a husband and wife are married, that is a family. That is the nuclear family. Children or not, that is a family. It's not just a marriage. It's a nuclear family. And then lastly from verses 5 and 6 here, or I guess two more things, uh, verses 5 and 6, marriage is a union. He'll leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there's a union, a uniting of flesh. This points to the one flesh union, one living substance. And so sometimes you'll hear in weddings, um, it's my joy to pronounce to you or to, uh, to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. P.J. Tobian or Mr. and Mrs. And you say the group thing. Why do you say Mr. and Mrs. but you just say one name? Because the two are now what? What? There's a union. There is a Mr. P.J. Tobian and there is a Mrs. P.J. Tobian. And the two are one. There is one P.J. Tobian, Mr. and Mrs. P.J. Tobian. And that's why Paul goes so far to say, if you, um, nobody hates his own flesh but looks after it. And so if you love yourself, then you take care of yourself. So therefore, husbands should love their wives because your wife is you. You are one. It makes no sense to take care of your right arm and not your left arm. It makes, it makes no sense to take care of your head and not your legs. If your legs are in pain, like, well, it's not my head. All I do, all I care about is my head. Like, no, you are one body. You're one flesh. You take care of your whole body, right? So when you get a little nagging pain, it's a nagging pain, and it distracts your whole body because you're one body. And that's what marriage is. The two become one flesh. You are your spouse, and your spouse is you. You are one flesh. That's what Paul gets at in Ephesians 5. We get a little glimpse here, a window into the gospel here. So if you're not a Christian, I want you to especially pay attention now. And children, I want you to pay attention now because this is the good news of God for you. Just like a, a husband leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, God the Son leaves his father in heaven and comes to earth. God the Son doesn't have a mother. There's no mother God. But God the Son leaves God the Father in heaven, comes to earth and becomes a man for us, for his bride. And he lives for his bride. He dies on the cross for the sins of his bride. And he rises from the dead and becomes one with his bride to save her and redeem her and to marry her so that he can take her into the new earth, to the new home, to live happily ever after. And we needed him to come. Because we rebelled against God and we were dirty, we were sinful, we were evil, we were condemned, we were lost because our Creator made us to know Him and yet we rebelled against our Creator. So we deserve to be thrown into hell. We can't live happily ever after with our groom if we're in hell. And so if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that we're all sinners before our Creator and we deserve to go to hell. But God the Son left His Father in heaven to save us from our sins. So that everyone who repents from their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ become united to him. You become part of his bride. And you become one with him in his death, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. 
So if you're not a Christian, I plead with you to find forgiveness and union with God, union with Christ, through repentance from your sins and faith in Jesus Christ. All right, now back to verse 6. Marriage is God's act. Look at verse 6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. We just covered that. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is not just an act of a husband leaving his father and mother and joining his wife, but what God has joined together. In other words, who's the one joining these two together? God is. God is the one. God is the one who's acting and uniting people as husband and wife, not to be separated by humans. Have you ever been to a wedding? Raise your hand if you've been to a wedding. Kids, have you ever been to a wedding? Some of you have. How many of you have been a ring bearer or a flower girl? Raise your hand. All right. Um, when does God actually join them together as husband and wife? Not during the procession, as important as the flower girls are, right? And the ring bearer who doesn't almost ever have the ring with him. That's not when they become one. It's not during the question of intent. Do you take this woman to be your man? Do you take this man to be your husband? Who gives this woman to be married to this man? It's not during the question of intent that they become one. It's not during the word of God being spoken and sung and preached. They don't become one then. Then they turn to each other. Then they share, they, they, they say their vows. Uh, maybe they become one after that. They're not one while they're saying their vows, but they're saying their vows in front of everyone. And then in our weddings, we do a second vow of, do you have a token for your vows? And then they say, yes, we got rings. And then with the rings, they, they say another vow with their rings. And then at some point, I or whoever's officiating will say, because of these vows, I now pronounce you husband and wife. That pronouncement is not the making of the union. It is after God has joined them together, the officiant is now pronouncing what God has done. So sometime after the vows, before the pronouncement, in front of your very eyes as you're at a wedding, God, the creator in heaven, is taking this man and woman and joining them as husband and wife. And what God joins together, let no one separate. wonderful thing to attend a wedding to witness God bringing husband and wife together. So, is no-fault divorce okay? Again, I told you Jesus doesn't directly answer the question, but he answers it by pointing to the divine design of marriage. Divorce, because marriage is a union, is more, it's not like, C.S. Lewis says, it's not like dissolving a business partnership, it's more like having your legs cut off. That points to the union. Divorce is painful. Divorce is traumatic. It's traumatic to have your legs cut off and your arms cut off. But if you need to survive, guess it's possible for survival. We'll get to divorce in a second. But the point here is that no-fault divorce is not, it's not okay. And not only is it not okay, divorce is a bigger deal than just changing business partners or moving to another house. So church family, here's some application. If you're a Christian, dignify marriage. Raise the value and honor of the institution of marriage in your own heart and in your conversations by remembering the beginning and remembering the end. 
That it points to Christ and the church. And it ends with a husband and wife living happily ever after. That's the end of the story of the Bible. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is God's design. Marriage is a gift. It shows the glory of God. And we need to think about it and feel about it and talk about it according to the value of what it actually is. And church family, what does this mean for us as a church? It means we, mean, we need to confess happily our confession of faith. Our confession of faith says, here's what you believe if you're a member of this church. Here's what we confess together. Quote, marriage is God's unique gift uniting one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime to reveal the union between Christ and his church. And to provide for the man and woman in marriage the framework for companionship, sexual expression according to biblical standards, and the means for, procreate, for both procreation of the human race and the establishment of human society. That's what we believe as a church. That's what we believe the Bible teaches. Meditate on that. You might want to memorize that confessional statement and dignify marriage by that memorization. So humbly accept and approve Christ's teaching on marriage. But not just marriage, but also on divorce. Let's go to the second point. Accept and, accept and approve the option of divorce. Accept and approve Christ's teaching on the option of divorce. Verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Now, in verse 7, they're saying that Moses did what? Moses what? Commanded. And Jesus says, he told them, Moses what? Permitted you to divorce. And if you look at it carefully, in, in Deuteronomy 24, it's a permission. Moses didn't command or require divorce. He permitted it. So that's important to note. That Moses didn't command divorce. He permitted it. Now, I don't want to make too much of command and permit here. I would actually like to make a lot about it. But if you read Mark, Jesus calls it command, and they say permit. So um, that's Mark chapter 10. So I don't want to press that too hard. But it is worth noting that they're not on the same page here. You need to, be, you need to clearly look through it. But, but let, let's go to this. Uh, let's go to what Jesus is saying here. Moses permitted divorce. What Moses commanded or prohibited was you cannot remarry. Um, let, well, let's just go back to Deuteronomy 24. Let's, let, let me read it to you now. Let me read you the whole paragraph. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. Let's go back to Moses' actual words. If this is a debate about Moses' words, let's read Moses' words. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may, may, not he must, he may write her a, a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a, a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, either way, if he divorces her or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not, so here's a prohibition, here's a command, he may not marry her again after she has been defiled because that would be detestable to Yahweh. You must not, there's a command, you must not bring guilt on the land Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. So why does Moses give this? Why does Moses give this command for divorce, that's the question. And Jesus answers, why? 
Because of what? In, in Matthew 19, 8. Because of your hardness of hearts. Because of your hard heart. Now that could refer to the hard heart of the one, the husband or the wife who wants to get a divorce. And here in this case, the husband who wants to get a divorce. I think it might include that, but I think it's actually broader than that. I think it more broadly includes the hardness of heart as a way of referring to the brokenness of our world due to sin. It's not just the hardness of heart of the individuals who are getting a divorce, but this world is here because of sin. And part of the consequence of a broken world is hard hearts and broken marriages and broken relationships and a lot of sin that happens between husband and wife. There's a lot of sin that happens before the sin of divorce for, for, um, for the person who's sinning in divorce. Now, Jesus is going to say that not everyone sins when they're getting a divorce. But the point is, there's all kinds of hardness of heart and sins that happen in a marriage. Every marriage has sin in it. Right? Is that true of your marriage? Every marriage has sin to deal with in the marriage. That is not abnormal. Every marriage has to fight hardness of heart in their marriage. That's true of every single marriage this side of the fall. I guess... Adam and Eve are the only ones who got to experience a little bit of non-hard-hearted marriage. What a wonderful experience that was, I'm sure. But here the point is, Moses gives this permission and this command because we live in a broken world where there's hard-heartedness. Divorce, again, going back to the earlier point, divorce was not part of the original design or plan or of, the, of the intention of God. That was not part of the original design. Or even the remaining intention after the fall. The intention of marriage is one is a union of man and woman for a whole lifetime, a permanent covenant till death do us part. That's the intention. Even now, that's the remaining intention. And that was the original design. So the point here, look at verse 8. It's because of the hardness of your heart. But it was not like that from the beginning. That's not the design. Verse 9 says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife... Except for sexual immorality, marries another and commits adultery. In other words, if the divorce is invalid, it is sinful. And if one remarries someone from an invalid divorce, then what do they commit? What do they commit? Adultery. If you marry someone who is not validly divorced, then that act of marrying... And consummating that marriage is an act of adultery. It's not perpetual adultery for the rest of the marriage. But that marriage, that wedding, and that, that consummating of the marriage is adulterous. It is sinful. It is evil. It is disobedient to the Lord. Now, Jesus names one exception here for divorce. What's that exception? What was it? What's the exception? Where it's not a sin to get a divorce, where it's permitted? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Adultery. What is sexual immorality? It's any sexual activity outside of the marriage bed according to biblical standards. So any sexual activity that a man or woman has with another person or I guess even being because bestiality is also a form of sexual morality. Any sexual activity a man or a husband or wife has with a person or animal, I should say now, outside of their, yeah, that they're not married to, is sexual immorality. Any sexual activity in that regard. So my wife and I were debating, and I don't have the answer, so don't press me. I was like, 
What about a kiss? What about like how far until is it only intercourse or whatever the case, you know? Start getting pharisaical in that regard to get the exact, you know, spot. But the point here, the category is sexual immorality. If there's sexual immorality, then there is grounds for divorce. Divorce is permitted. And I would say, I don't have time to argue for it here, also implied in that is remarriage is permitted. Divorce and remarriage is permitted when sexual immorality is the cause. Why? Because sexual immorality breaks the covenant. Sexual immorality breaks the covenant. There's a covenant of one flesh and in sexual immorality, you are uniting your body to another person and it, in, into the covenant, into the one flesh union, having a third person in the union is a breaking of the commitment, the covenant commitment of one man, one woman in that union. To add a third person or party into the union is breaking of the man-woman union. And so to break the covenant is grounds for permission to divorce. That's not the only ground in the Bible. There are other ways to break the covenant. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says if an unbeliever deserts or abandons or leaves his believing spouse, then divorce is permitted and remarriage is permitted, I would say. 1 Corinthians 7.15. That's not the only other one. Do you know any other ones in the Bible? Those are the two everyone knows. Any other biblical one? Death of a spouse. Death of a spouse is not divorce, but yeah, I mean, that would break the marriage covenant, but it would not, that's another way of breaking, yeah, that's right, way of breaking the marriage covenant, but not do, a, a grounds for divorce. Abuse, is that, anyone have a Bible verse for that? I don't know if there's a Bible verse for abuse, but I think it could apply. Let's go to Exodus 21. Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11, it says this. And I don't think this is overturned by the new covenant, just so you're aware. This, I think, helps us get the, the general category. If he takes an additional wife, which again is already out against God's original design, the divine design. If he takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights. That's even the conjugal rights, the... The marriage bed rights, he must not um, reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. How did Solomon do that? He had 300 wives. How do you not reduce the marital rights? Don't reduce their marital rights, marriage bed rights at all. 300 wives. Verse 11. If, if you do that, what happens? Verse 11. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may what? Leave. Free of charge without any payment. That's a divorce. Leave the marriage. If he doesn't produce food, clothing, and marital rights of the first wife. In other words, there are there are activities like that that if you do them not one time, okay, not a one meal. I missed a meal, now I can get a divorce. Like you didn't have one meal ready, I got home, it's late, what? Divorce. No, you can't. That's not that's not what it, that's not what he's saying. But there is a pattern that can happen. In, like we're talking about physical, someone used abuse in neglect, where 
the pattern of it, not just normal sin, garden variety sin in a marriage, but outsized abnormal sins of neglect can functionally break the covenant. This is not going back to the Pharisees here and the Hillel school and Rabbi Akiba who says, oh, if you find someone fairer, then you can do it. You know, you can get a divorce or if she burns your meal. That's not, it's not that. But the covenant between one man and one woman can be broken by sexual morality, by desertion, or by even some of these extreme forms of neglect in a marriage. And that's why you need a church family to walk through those types of things in each other's lives. But covenant breaking is the category. When is divorce permitted? When the covenant is broken. When is it broken? At least in three texts. Sexual morality, desertion by an unbeliever, or by extreme patterned neglect. Okay. So, but it's one category. It's covenant breaking. And notice Jesus is not saying you must get divorced when this happens. What is he saying? You may, right? It's permitted, but you can work through it. There can be forgiveness of sexual morality and uh, other types of sins that break the covenant. There are ways of doing it. So let me apply this before we move on to our last two points, which are faster. Application for our society. First of all, if you're part of the society, you just need to know this, okay? Getting married, get, uh, getting marriage and divorce right affects us and our society as a whole. Do you know, it affects Do you know divorce affects children? Big time, right? Poverty for children grow, goes up from uh, growing, in a, growing up in a one-parent home versus a two-parent home. Poverty grows up goes up from 11% to 38%, or at least it did in one study a few decades ago. From 11% to 38% likelihood of growing up in poverty, growing up in a single-parent home. There's also long-term emotional trauma and a deficit in social skills exhibited by children of divorce. And the church has to pick up the pieces in our discipling. And we have to, we get to. That's part of our responsibility of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we're gonna do, we need to grow in that. So what does this mean for our church family? As a church family, let us BBC rally around children in single parent homes. Let us invest in single parents specifically and intentionally as a church family. What I'm saying, if you don't hear me, church family, I'm saying give more attention to single parent homes than two parent homes in our church, in your love and in your time and in your devotion. Christian, study the beauty and the design of marriage and the grounds of divorce and the way to love neighbors and members who are feeling the brokenness of our world and the hardness of human hearts. And let me say, with that, um, people disagree on, on the grounds of divorce. I just gave you my view. There are different, some people say, no divorce ever. Others say only sexual morality. Others say only sexual immorality and desertion. Others say no fault divorce. So there is, and some people say divorce but not remarriage. There are, there's a spectrum of views, so many views. And I think what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna send you an email with a bunch of resources so you guys can listen to this stuff yourself and come up to your own uh, to your own conclusions. But I would encourage you to study and think through this issue. Let me say something to those who are divorced, who are here. If you're divorced, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. 
And the divorce may not have been your sin or your fault. You might not have sinned in the divorce. And let me encourage you with one other thing. In Jeremiah 3.8, in Jeremiah 3.8, God identifies himself as a divorcee. When he divorced Israel, the northern kingdom, and is about to do the same to the southern kingdom. He wrote his spouse, Israel, a certificate of divorce for Israel breaking their marriage covenant with him. Again, that's not part of God's original design, but I want you to know that it's not the unpardonable sin. It's not like you have a scarlet letter. You need to be encouraged, brother or sister, that God sees you. God loves you. He knows you. And he is your light and your salvation. Don't let Satan take this teaching and distort it like he likes to do with all kinds of biblical teaching in, in wrong ways. So the good news is that God cares and he calls all of us to care so that he would care through us to one another and to our neighbors. All right, so humbly accept Christ's teaching on divorce, on marriage, and now on singleness. Let's go to number three. Accept and improve the blessing of marriage and the blessing of singleness. Verses 10 through 12. So back at Matthew 19, verse 10. <clears throat> the disciples said to him, so Jesus is saying something countercultural. It's not just he's siding with Shammai, even more than Rabbi Shammai, he's even going a little bit more extreme in some ways. We're talking about permission rather than command. So the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to get married. This is hard, Jesus. Union, let no one separate. Only a few exceptional grounds of covenant breaking. But other than that, I got to stay with her. She's got to stay with me. It's just better to not get married. This is too hard. This is not worth it. That's what they're saying, right? Now, Jesus responds by saying, not everyone can accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, the disciples seem to struggle with evaluating the goodness of Christ's teaching. Let me ask you a question. You just tell me yes or no. Is Christ's teaching on divorce and remarriage a good thing or a bad thing? Is his teaching good or bad? Is it life-giving or is it life-draining? Life-giving. At least that's what we're supposed to know. We should know that as Christians, right? They, they're like, it's not better. This is worse. When you said Jesus makes marriage worse, it's better to just not get married then. And so they're struggling with Christ's teaching on it. And so what we're called to do is accept the sayings of Jesus. That's what he says. Not everyone can accept the saying. At the end of verse 12, the one who's able to accept it should accept it. So we should accept Christ's teaching as good and God's design as good. It's better than Shammai's, Shammai's teaching or Rabbi Hillel or you, the, the United States conception of marriage or your family history of marriage. Christ's teaching is the best teaching, the most life-giving teaching on marriage. Not everyone can accept it. And the standard for marriage, um, not everyone can accept the standard for marriage and divorce. So some may count it better to be single. And if that's you, you say, you know, it is better to be single. Jesus actually goes there with the disciples too. He's like, okay, in some ways it is actually better to be single. So he says, not everyone can accept this teaching, but there's dignity and goodness and blessing in being single as well. Is there blessing in being married? Yes. Is there blessing in being single? Jesus is saying, yes. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs. So eunuchs are not married. So you, you can think of them as singles, but eunuchs is not just a, a mild word for single. Eunuchs is a, it's an insult. It's a derogatory term. It's, an embar it's embarrassing to be categorized as a eunuch. 
because that means you're either a eunuch by birth. So he says in verse 12, some were born that way from their mother's womb. They're not able to get married because some of their organs are not working correctly. Their sexual organs are not working or, or able to. Secondly, um, there are undeveloped. And then there are eunuchs who are made by men. In other words, they were castrated. So a lot of king's courts had eunuchs who were castrated so that they wouldn't have to worry about adultery. Kings wouldn't have to be worrying about adultery when they take care of their wives because they wanted men to protect these women. But either way, it's, it's an embarrassing category to be a eunuch. And then there are eunuchs who made themselves that way. In other words, they choose to be single. Why? Because of what? In verse 12, why did they choose to be single? Because of the kingdom of heaven. So there are eunuchs or singles for these reasons. Now, Jesus was also, in that, in that sense, Jesus was categorized as a eunuch. He wasn't married. Paul was single, as best we know. Or he was. In 1 Corinthians 7, he tells us that. John the Baptist was single. And so it's not like everyone had to be married, though by far marriage was the norm. But let me say a few things here about being single by choice. Some are single by choice, deciding to stay this way. Why again, according to verse 12? Because of what? Because of what? The kingdom of heaven. All right, so brothers and sisters, look up here. I want to talk to you briefly here about kingdom singleness. What is kingdom singleness? The only way for a Christian to be single, or the best way, the right way for a Christian to be single is to be a, a, a single who is single because of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, embracing kingdom singleness. In seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, these um, singles believe and desire that they can do, um, they desire to do more for the kingdom through their singleness than they could do if they're married. They're leveraging their singleness for it. What can singles do that married couples can't? They can disciple more people they can go to different places. They're more mobile. And they, can be in, they can be involved in discipling, church planting, and missions in ways and for amounts of focused and direct time that they could not do if they were married. Let me pull some ideas from 1 Corinthians 7. We don't have time to turn to 1 Corinthians 7, but let me pull some ideas from 1 Corinthians 7 for you on singleness. Singles can be devoted to the Lord without the distraction of, quote, I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians 7, without distraction of the things of the world. Singles can be devoted to the Lord without the concerns of how to please their spouse and the household economy. That's verses 32 to 35 of chapter 7. Singles can avoid the trouble in this life. According to 1 Corinthians 7, 38, it is better not to marry. Paul says it is better not to marry. 1 Corinthians 7, 38. Why? Or in what sense? It is better not to marry in the sense of having an undistracted devotion to the Lord. To summarize, an undistracted devotion to the Lord without concerns of the, of the spouse or house or the troubles of this world. One can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and they can do good works in ways that married people are unable to do. And in that sense, it is better to be single. That's what Paul's saying. For an undistracted devotion to the Lord with these opportunities. Now, is it wrong for singles to desire marriage? Yes or no? No. Is it wrong for them to really, really, really desire marriage? Yes or no? No. 
For people who do not have self-control and are burning with a desire for romantic, marital, and sexual intimacy, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7-9, it is better to get married. So is it better to be single or better to be married? Both. It's better to be single for an undistracted devotion to the Lord. It's better to be married if you're on fire, if your pants are on fire. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what he's saying. So they're both better, just depends who you are. All right? Now, that doesn't mean you're like, oh, my pants are on fire, so should I get married? You can still get married if your pants are on fire. But it's better to not sin with sexual morality and lacking self-control. It's better to get married than to burn with desire. So both marriage and singleness are gifts from the Lord for His kingdom in different ways. But even singles who have this burning desire for a spouse, let me speak to you if you're single, if you're single and you have a desire to get married, you're like, PJ, that's me. PJ, I'm just like you. I have a burning desire to be married. I want to say I can empathize with you. I can sympathize with that. I mean, I understand. I, I, I understand that personally. But even for singles who have this burning desire for a spouse, you should live your days of premarital. And I'm speaking to all those who are married right now. And for you who are married, you should live your days of postmarital singleness. If your spouse dies, you'll be single again. So whether premarital singleness or postmarital singleness, you should live your singleness with a singleness that is devoted to the kingdom of heaven. And use and leverage your undistracted devotion to the Lord in your time of singleness, whether before marriage or after marriage. Even if you're after marriage because of a divorce. Here's what Tim Keller says. I'm just going to quote him because he says it better than I can. Tim Keller on how to embrace your, your kingdom singleness as a calling. In other words, your singleness is a calling. Even if it's a temporary one, it's a calling. So here's what Tim Keller says. If you're going to embrace a singleness as a calling with a kingdom mindset, here's what you need to do. He, he says, quote, I'm not going to rage against my singleness. Instead, I'm going to use the freedom I got as a single person to serve people. I'm going to refuse to rage against God. That's what it means to offer up your singleness. It's to say, Lord, if you want me single today, I'm going to use my singleness. I'm going to use my independence I got. I'm going to use my freedom to serve people and to serve you. I'm going to die to my yearning to be married. It doesn't mean I'm going to deny it. I'm not going to rage against you on it. I'm going to serve you in it. I'm going to give it to you. And I know that if I give it to you, it will be resurrected into something beautiful. But if I use my singleness and the freedom I've got to indulge in my desires, it will kill me. That's what Jesus is saying, Tim, Tim Keller says. He continues and says, don't be single because you're forced to be that way against your will. Be single for the kingdom of God, end quote. So be single with kingdom intentionality. So church family, what does this mean for us as a church? Encourage members in their blessing of temporary earthly marriage or temporary earthly singleness. Be aware of the ways you can serve those who are not like you. If you're married, or first of all, let me say to the children, children, get to know and bless the singles of our church. Children, you might say, what is a single? Ezra, do you know what a single is? No, you don't, okay. You're saying, yeah, he's like, yeah, I'm going to get to know the singles. What is a single? Singles... Yeah, some, people, some singles are pointing at you. A single is somebody who's not married. But kids, even if you don't know who singles are, kids get to know the adults and pray for the adults. Pray for them, pray for their marriage. And if they're not married, pray for them. 
And that's how you can get to know single members of our church. If you're married, invite singles into your home and into your life and seek to learn from them and see the world through their eyes and heart. And if you're single, be friends with siblings in Christ of the opposite sex as you live for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than earthly marriage, and it's bigger than singleness. I have a ton of things I want to say about singleness that I can't say now. So tonight, before we do our prayer encounter for an hour, we're going to have a Q&A on this message and on anything else you guys want to talk about. All right, we'll do that for like 20 to 30 minutes, max, max 30 minutes. Okay, lastly, I want to pull all this together. So if we're going to understand Christ's teaching on divorce and marriage and singleness, I think there's actually a bigger theme underneath this whole passage. In verses 1 and 2, remember verses 1 and 2? Jesus departed from the transfiguration and from teaching about church discipline and love, and then a large crowd followed him. But he went to the, in verse 1, he went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. So Jesus goes from south, from north to south. Why? Where is Jesus going? Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He wants to what? He wants to go to the cross. He is going to die for our sins. Okay, so I want you to remember here, remember who you're following. So this last point is this, because my main goal is humbly accept. I want to focus on the word humbly, because the Pharisees were not humble, and the disciples were not humble. How do you humbly accept Christ's teaching? Number one, remember who you're following. Jesus is going to the cross to die. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You are following the Lord who is committed to the cross. So when you hear his teaching about anything, including divorce and remarriage, and including marriage and including singleness, you're following a, a man who is determined to die on the cross. And if you're a Christian, you have decided that you'll take up your cross and follow this Jesus. So when you're confused by the plans and teachings of Jesus, lean into the teaching, not away from it. You need faith like a child, right? That's what he said, faith like a child. Faith like a child, faith like a mustard seed, small faith to move mountains, but you need faith like a child. When you think you know better than Jesus is when you get in trouble. That's not humbly um, accepting. So you need to ask yourself, are you sure you wanna follow this Jesus who takes up a cross? And tells you to take up a cross and follow him. So firstly, I have the four things about humility. Number one is remember who you're following. Second way to humbly lean hard into Jesus is to adjust your approach to Christ and his word. Look at verse three. How did the Pharisees approach Jesus? They approached him to what? Look at verse three, to test him. So adjust your approach to Christ. The Pharisees just want to test him. They want to see if he'll get it right. They want to trap him. They don't ask questions in good faith. And sometimes we don't ask questions in good faith either. We ask questions to test God. And then look at verse four, Jesus responds by saying, haven't you read? What can we learn from that? If he says, haven't you read? He's saying that they, they are reading carelessly. They're sloppy readers. If you're going to lean hard and humbly into Jesus, adjust your approach to Christ and his word. In other, word, in other words, don't read God's words carelessly. Pay careful attention to God's words. Thirdly, so if you're going to read humbly, if you're going to be humbly leaning into Christ, you need to remember who you're following. You need to adjust your approach to Christ and his word. Number three, you need to understand your heart response to him and his words. Remember, divorce was permitted because of the hardness of our what? Our hearts. Our hard hearts create contexts that distort God's good design. Our hard hearts can make it difficult to know and trust and enjoy Christ and his words. Our hard hearts make us twist the intentions of scripture the way that they're twisting Moses' words. 
As if Moses in Genesis, Moses in Deuteronomy 24 is overturning Moses in Genesis 2. He's not Moses against Moses. Don't twist the words of scripture. Understand your heart response to God's words and ask God to soften your heart. And lastly, let your heart be shaped by his. And I'm getting this from verse 10. What was the disciples' response to Christ and his word? When he talked about marriage, they were saying, it's not as good as, I found a better way than your word. Do you ever think that sometimes? You read your Bible and you're like, God, I hear your word, but I have a better way of solving this problem than your way. I know what you're saying about marriage and divorce and singleness, but it's just better to not get married. And Jesus says, well, back up. You don't know better than me. You don't know better than my word. So I wanna say this, happily and humbly, find the parts of the Bible that are hardest for you to trust the wisdom and live in those passages. That will be the, that will spur your spiritual growth more than any other, than anything, than, than many other things in your Christian life. When you find Bible verses that are hard for you and you stay there and let you, you let your soul camp there and you let it just keep working on your hard heart. Lord, I know your word is good. I don't know how, but I know it is. And you stay there and say, God, shape me by this word because it's a good word. When you do that, you will not be conformed to this world, but you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will approve what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That's Romans 12, verse 2. So therefore, brothers and sisters, soften your heart and receive God's word by adjusting your approach to Christ and his word, by understanding his words and his heart, and by happily and humbly letting your heart and values be shaped by his word. So I'll say the main goal one more time and we'll pray. Humbly accept and approve from your heart Christ's teaching on divorce, marriage, and singleness so that you faithfully disciple the nations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you take these words and hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Help us to know that your teaching on and your design for marriage is good, your design for uh, your permission for divorce is good, and your teaching on singleness and kingdom singleness is good. And help us, Lord, more importantly and maybe more foundationally, be humble before you. Forgive us for our hard hearts. Forgive us for reading hastily. Forgive us for testing you. Cleanse us and help us to humbly receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and take the next three to four minutes to share a takeaway with someone around you, something that God pressed on you from this message or passage. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper.